Facebook, that social media siren, has taken a beating. Billions of dollars in market value, the incalculable chunk out of its reputation for trustworthiness. Congress has summoned CEO Mark Zuckerberg to testify, and Zuckerberg has resorted to legacy media, newspaper ads, for a mea culpa. None of this may make any difference at all, and that's what worries the people at the Center for Humane Technology. These are no Luddites. They're Silicon Valley heavy hitters themselves, now become Paul Revere's of the tech takeover. Asa Raskin is a co-founder and chief strategy officer there, and he sounds an alarm about where tech is taking democracy and humanity, if you can hear it all through the chaff and clamor of that phone in your pocket. The motto of the Center for Humane Technology, or the mission statement maybe, is technology is hacking our minds and society. Certainly in the last couple of weeks, we've been given proof of that. Our founder, Tristan, has been talking about this uh, you know, since 2014, where he became the design ethicist for, for Google and looked at all the ways in which our tech companies' business models are designed to addict us. We make money when people spend time on our sites, and this creates a whole bunch of bad incentives to stick us around. And we've created the world's largest persuasion machine. And when 67% of the U.S. population gets its news from social media um, and from, from tech companies. They literally are deciding what we see and what we believe is true and what our sense of reality is. And we're now seeing that a couple bad actors like Cambridge Analytica have used the ability of these platforms as they were designed to be used, which is to say to sell product to influence people, which is not so much different than selling an ideology. So like Captain Renault in Casablanca, are we shocked, shocked that this is happening when this was in fact part of the business model all along? Many times when, when we talk to people, they're like, oh, this is nothing new. We've had advertising for a long time. We've had propaganda for a long time. And what's different this time, um, and that it's hard to see when you're inside of the machine, is for the very first time, our connections with our friends are intermediated. And what these companies do is they intermediate our sense of consensus reality, which then gets hacked by Russia, which then gets hacked by Cambridge Analytica. So that's one thing that's different. The second thing is that it is 24-7. The phone is the first thing people pick up and look at when they wake up. It's the last thing they use before they go to sleep, and they check it 150 times a day. And the third thing is that these products are a little bit like tobacco. They're addicting, but it's a tobacco that gets smarter and better at addicting us the more we use it. So with just 150 likes that you analyze on Facebook, a computer algorithm can predict your action and know you better than your coworkers do, than your friends do, and even than your spouse does. And so you put these three things together, and we should be shocked at how easy it is to sort of drift a population in a direction that you want. This is one of the hardest problems to communicate. Then, if anyone's to talk about blame, where does blame get assigned? There's always more that we as individuals can do, but this is not an individual problem. This is a community and society scale problem. Early on in the Internet, there was Rule 230 of the 1996 Communications Act, 
which said that internet companies were not responsible for content that the users posted, which is a way of saying the internet and software was creating a space of deregulation where there were no protections for users. And at the beginning, it felt like a great thing. The web was this, this wild new world where creativity could be unleashed, you could connect with people and there's groups that could exist here that couldn't exist elsewhere. But what we've seen is that if software is eating the world, as Mark Andreessen likes to say, then deregulation is now eating the world. So if companies aren't responsible for the content that gets posted, at the very least, they need to be responsible for the content that they promote. So there's a YouTube researcher, Guillaume, who worked on the, the recommendation engine for what YouTube videos get played next. And what he's discovered is that no matter where you start on YouTube, if you just let the recommended videos play four or five times, you always get pushed further and further down conspiracy roads, further and further towards radicalization. If you start on things about vegetarians or vegetarian food, you end up in chemtrails. Hmm. And Facebook seems to be acting as a kind of sort of great radicalizer, as Zineep uh, has, has now famously said in, in her New York Times op-ed. And there, I think 100% these companies have responsibility. Facebook knew that Cambridge Analytica was using this data as of 2015, and yet they didn't really do anything because it wasn't convenient and it wasn't good for their business model. So at the heart of this, of course, lies the, the business model that if we are the product and not the customer, then all of Facebook's business model relies on grabbing our data and selling it to people. And this is just one bad actor, but do we really want somebody that has all of this power over society to be unregulated? If Facebook wanted to throw an election today, do you think they could? Of course they could. We can feel our sort of values being ripped from us or like we're sort of like losing our grasp on them as the discourse or public discourse gets more and more vitriolic. You are a second-generation computer person. Your father was interested in the computer-human interface. And so did you grow up thinking about these things, or did you have a road to Damascus moment yourself? I grew up just immersed in this world of something my father, Jeff, constantly talked about is that humans should not be subservient to computers. And for him, what that meant is that we shouldn't have to learn arcane ways of typing, you know, holding down like your left shift elbow uh, nose to get the computer to do what you want, <laughs> that the computer should. But what we're missing is the next level up. Computers can work pretty well for an individual, but they're working terribly for a society. And just like in the 80s, when we had, you know, computer human and in interaction take off as a field, what we need now is society-technology interaction, like understanding how societies and technology interact, because there are a lot of dark patterns that are breaking down democracy. So many of these companies have taken a position that they're ethically neutral, that they're sort of morally neutral. Yeah, I think the, the tack of saying, like, we're a neutral platform, so we don't have to take responsibility, it feels convenient, it feels nice, but it's very much like you know, taking your hand off of the steering wheel and being like, well, I'm not responsible for what happens if it crashes. And so we've, we've taken the course uh, of saying, like, we're a neutral third party. But that's not actually true because we've just outsourced our decisions to algorithms and said, like, hey, algorithm, just show users what is most popular, what gets most clicked on. But that's an editorial choice. 
And those editorial choices can be hacked easily. So I think it's important moving forward that especially for these recommendation systems, the companies be held responsible for the content that they promote. When systems are abused, like the 126 million American citizens who saw sort of Russian propaganda, um, or the 50 million users whose data was abused by Cambridge Analytica, that they should all be informed sort of directly that they were they were targeted. Because I don't think they can have it both ways of trying to pretend to be neutral, but then not taking responsibility when their platforms are, are used. Brian Acton, who created WhatsApp, said, delete Facebook. Is that even plausible? I would love for, for that to be plausible because it would sort of set up the next round of, of companies to try to tackle this. But I think for most people, Facebook and these other platforms become like such a part of their lives that it's, it's hard to say, just get off of it. Monopoly law was set up when all products cost money. Now, many of these products are free to use. And so our monopoly laws don't even touch that case. Um, and there's a new kind of monopoly, which is the monopoly of, of attention, a monopoly of like network effect. It's hard to get off Facebook because all of your friends are on Facebook, all the events happen on Facebook. And even if you got off, Facebook would still be collecting data about you inferred from your friends. And so instead, I, I think we, we have to think about other regulatory uh, mechanisms here. Tim Wu has this amazing paper on the First Amendment, where he says the First Amendment was created in a time when speech was expensive and listening was cheap. That it was it was hard to get your message out, but there wasn't that much content, so you, you could choose what to listen to. And now the inverse of that is true, that it's easy to get a message out, but it's hard to hear because there's so much out there. And that's changed the way the thing that the First Amendment was trying to protect is being abused. So an example is that China often doesn't just do direct censorship. Instead, they pay 2 million people to post 480 million comments on their social media. And that just diverts conversation or makes the false sense of popular opinion being something else. We need to be thinking at that sort of like society scale because that's what we as internet companies do. We operate at society scale. You and the people in your group are also Silicon Valley moguls, and you saw some of the problems. But what about the people who may not? What, for example, was, was a Mark Zuckerberg thinking about retrenching, regenerating, restructuring his product to address some of these? Is that is that what is going on in Silicon Valley now? I think uh, what we need to be careful of is watching for sort of the PR moves, the, the too little, too late kind of stuff. Because to really fix these problems, you're going to have to take a hit on your revenue. You know, when British Empire moved away from slavery, they took a hit of 2% of their GDP for 60 years. Like doing right often comes at the expense of business model. And unless they show that they're willing to do that, I'm, I'm unconvinced there's going to be real change. Can they do that? Will the shareholders start screaming and saying, you're abdicating your responsibility to make us rich? I think we can all be on team humanity here, uh, shareholders alike, and saying, like, is this, like, we see where this road is leading us, and it's not good. And if we want to remain a functioning society, we need to change. So I hope the answer is yes. What other remedies does your group suggest? There are a couple of simple things that, like, individual users can do um, just to fight off against the effects of digital addiction. 
One of our favorite ones is to turn your code into black and white mode, uh, grayscale. And what we found is just just reducing the sugariness of the colorfulness of your icon just makes it a little easier for you to put down your phone. Another one is turn off all notifications from non-humans. So no apps, no likes, just stuff that real people said. And that immediately reduces the amount of buzzing in your pocket uh, and reduces tech addiction. I suppose that there are a lot of Americans who are saying, I don't care if Facebook knows my kids' birth dates. Is that the most alarming scenario for you, that people just don't care, that the technology is taking them over, and that by extension, it can take over the functions of democracy and consumerism as well? Yeah, I think that's that is indeed one of my, my biggest worries is that this justice doesn't feel we're under attack by the Russians. They said in their documents that they're in an information war with us. And it doesn't feel like we're at war. There are no bombs exploding. There's nothing in our felt sense that tells us that something is wrong. And the same thing is true with all of the tech addiction and the way we're being manipulated is that it doesn't feel like there's somebody sort of walking behind us looking at everything that we do, and then crafting messages to get us to do whatever that that person wants, even though that's what's happening. And so you often know people will say, you know, I don't have anything to hide. What should it matter? But the truth is, is that given these data points that we willingly give up to Facebook, you know, algorithms, we can predict your sexual orientation, the likelihood that you have a drug problem, whether you're more neurotic or open and what kind of message will most exactly land with you to get you to vote for what politician. Are you and your associates talking to some of these tech companies where you used to work and in some cases were founding members of to say, look, this is how stuff has to change? We do. We do try to talk uh, to, to these companies. And in fact, Tristan at Google spent years on the inside. You sort of had this presentation, as I said, in 2014, we sort of started to talk about the vulnerabilities that our business models create and became uh, the most talked about thing has to be brought up at the next all hands, which, which they didn't talk about. Sandy, who was at Facebook and helping to run their uh, API privacy uh, policy violations team, brought this stuff up to them. I believe in 2012. So we tried from the inside, and that just hasn't worked. And now it comes from being on the outside and applying public pressure. So this was a major breach of trust, and and I'm really sorry that this happened. Um, you know, we have a basic responsibility to protect people's data, and if we can't do that, then then we don't uh, deserve to have the opportunity to serve people. But imagine if tomorrow Zuckerberg was like, you know what, you're right. These are the ways my platform is being abused, and Instead of just optimizing for time on site and page views, which optimizes for outrage and filter bubbles, I'm going to set my, whatever it is, 1,000, 10,000 engineers to try to figure out how to heal like the divides between people. That could be really, really powerful. The question is, is will they? And what are the odds of it? Doesn't seem great. The thing that you know, I start really worrying about is right now, you know, the level of of trust and shared reality is incredibly diminished. Truth has decayed. But I think it's going to get much worse because we're just at the brink of cheap AI and algorithmically generated fake video. And I think very soon we're just going to have bots 
scraping the top news and taking the actors and their words and just putting up every possible meme into them. And so when scandals break, you're going to be like, oh, I've already seen everything. I've seen every possible uh, scandal video. Every possible sex tape has already been created. When the Trump Hollywood Access tapes came out, you'd be like, yeah, but I can listen to like 100,000 other versions of this with him saying other things. Because it's going to be anything that's in sort of like the research community now is going to be an app on your smartphone within a year. Asa Raskin, thank you. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Dave Wine and Mike Heflin. The music is I Love My Computer by Bad Religion on Atlantic Records and Technologic by Daft Punk on the Parlophone label. The Zuckerberg clip is from CNN. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast.